0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel. And today I'm talking to Dr. Vanya Smith Oka, who is the author of the book Becoming Gods Medical Training in Mexican Hospitals, published by Rutgers University Press. Dr. Smith Oka, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Reagan. I'm really honored to be part of this.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. And I'm really excited to talk with you about your book. And so I wanted to begin by situating you within anthropology, because you're, you're a cultural anthropologist and a medical anthropologist, and your work focuses on motherhood, specifically indigenous motherhood, medical institutions, and the culture of medicine. And so I wondered how you came to focus on medical anthropology as your particular field of study.
1: Yeah, you know, that, that's a great question. Um, and as it's probably the case for most of us who are scholars, it was a series of small steps, a bit of a winding path that eventually brought me here. So as an undergraduate student uh, forever ago, I was a biology major, and I didn't actually pick up anthropology until my junior year. And my interests at that time were in ecological anthropology. So it, it, that was a topic that occupied my interests for... Probably about half my time doing my PhD, and I was uh, for that I was actually interested in examining indigenous medicine in Mexico and the ways that healers and lay people uh, would sort of go to the forest and collect plants and uh, you know what how they would choose them and manage the forest. So it was a very sort of ecological, political, ecological questions. Um, And so my my interest in medical anthropology as as a topic itself or as a field didn't really develop until I I first went to the field for my dissertation research. Um, so I was a fourth year student and you know I get to the field and I, I realized that there were many more interesting questions about healing and well-being beyond simply a question of traditional medicine um and so the more I spoke with the with the women who I interacted with on a daily basis the more they would share with me their problematic interactions with clinical staff, and that was how I began to slowly shift my focus to encompass more medical anthropology questions about the body, about well-being and healing, and in particular, how questions of power shaped uh, or continue to shape people's interactions. So I ended up focusing on indigenous motherhood and how it was often criticized by development and health institutions and systems uh, that... uh, you know aimed to make the the idea of indigenous motherhood as something modern so they were trying to sort of modernize uh, the 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 women in in the village and other regions um to fit with with mainstream mexico's ideas of what was good motherhood and so you know it was a, a sort of winding path that took me from ecological anthropology to this more um, medical anthropology perspective and i've pretty much stayed in that um so far mm-hmm.
2: Thank you. And your book, um, Becoming Gods, Medical Training in Mexican Hospitals, it follows a cohort of interns as they learn to become doctors in public and private hospitals in Puebla, Mexico. And so what led you specifically to write the book, Becoming Gods?
1: Yeah. So in the time between my previous book, which emerged from the research I just described, and then this one, I spent about maybe Six years carrying out ethnography in public hospitals in the city of Puebla. So this is a so my original work was in rural Mexico, and so this uh, the city of Puebla is a is a large city of about two million people, and it's located in central Mexico. And you know, like any big city in a, a country such as Mexico, it's highly stratified economically, socially, politically. Um, and so I was interested in I was still interested in questions of sort of power dynamics. But but I was really focusing much more on, uh, on maternity wards, especially uh, in the labor and delivery rooms themselves. And the, the more I was working in these spaces, the more I, I witnessed a tremendous amount of, of mistreatment towards the female patients, most of whom were impoverished or were on public um, health care systems um, and uh, or fell into, you know, what I what they were defining as, that the doctors were defining as, you know, quote, problematic motherhood, or of somehow reproducing outside of, of the norm. So many of them were considered to be too young or too old to be having children. They were sometimes unmarried. They were often less well-educated. And so any of these sort of social categories uh, put them into, into this definition of, of being problematic in some way. And so many of them were treated callously or even negligently by doctors and nurses, and they were threatened with, with, uh, with violence. I saw them being shouted at. I saw them being shamed or humiliated for, you know, their sexuality, for having children. Um, they were subjected to unnecessary procedures like cesareans or episiotomies, and so all of this added up to what is now being referred to as obstetric violence, which, in a nutshell, just It consists of emotional or verbal or physical mistreatment of women during childbirth. And so after witnessing all of these for so many years, I really wanted to figure out why, right? Why was this violence so prevalent? And was this something that doctors learned in medical school? Um, Did it come from some of their sort of first interactions with patients and it somehow, you know, shifted their perspective on medical care? Or was it something larger, right? Something maybe threaded through Mexican society? So at that point, um, this is around 2012, 2013, I decided to shift my focus to ethnography with doctors as opposed to, you know, uh, observing doctors as, as sort of the antagonists of patients. And so at first I started research with medical students at some of the medical schools, and then I eventually shifted to working with medical interns in hospitals. As I could then witness their lives as they learned hands-on practices, as well as you know, seeing how they how they grew and developed over the course of their one-year internship. And honestly, I went into that research thinking of doctors as the enemy. I'd spent the better part of a decade writing about them in negative ways. But the more time I spent with them and the, the more nuanced my perceptions of them became. um, Sure, they could still be violent. They could still have pretty problematic interactions with some patients. But Some of this I I, I describe in the book. Um, But they also cared deeply about their patients as well as medical care. And many of them also experienced violence in their own training, which I also mentioned in the book. So I think the book Becoming Gods, for me at least, and I hope the reader would think this as well, it, it sort of fleshes out the idea of a doctor. It shifts it from a one-dimensional perspective into a more complex, three-dimensional, flawed but also caring human being.
2: Yeah, that definitely comes across in the book. And I wanted you to, I wanted to ask you then about the the interns that you focus on, as you as you just um, really just explained for us, um, because the interns seem to inhabit this intermediary period after medical school but before becoming fully fledged doctors, mm-hmm. and. You mentioned in the book that medicine is a bachelor's degree in Mexico, which I assume is different from the United States where it is. We'll go to med school after undergrad. Um, And so I wondered if you could uh, situate them for us, what stage of their education they're in and what their responsibilities are in the hospital
1: yeah uh, definitely. Um, so what's interesting about medicine uh, in, in Mexico as well as many other parts of the world is that it actually is a bachelor's degree um, you know in the US as you say it's it's very different students do, um, Uh, undergraduate degree first and then they they go to 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 medical school but um so in in mexico um they will enter medical school just after high school which sometimes makes them feel so very young um and uh in, in 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 mexico medical school is is six years long Uh, So students take classes for four years uh, where they cover, you know, the basic sciences, questions about community health, as well as some of the specialties. Like they take classes in obstetrics or pathology, rheumatology, what have you. And so during this time, they also engage in minor rotations in clinics and hospitals once or twice a week. Uh, maybe a few hours a day. And at, it's at these points that they start to get the hang of, uh, of doing things like suturing or drawing blood, or um, as well as starting to, to understand how hospitals work. Um, you know, for instance, like where they need to stand during a surgery or how to enter into a patient room, how to introduce themselves to patients, et cetera. Um, At the end of those four years, all medical students engage in a year-long internship at a hospital. And so these are the interns I speak about in the book. And then the sixth year, which I refer to a little bit in the book, um, it's when uh, all medical students participate in a mandatory year of social service to the nation. And so they're usually posted to underserved areas of the country to practice medicine in usually quite small, remote villages, uh, clinics in villages. So in the internship, they're still technically students at their medical school, but they spend most of their waking hours at the hospital. So there's some uh, variation really in the structure of internships depending on the hospital where they're at. Um, but in general, um, interns will will rotate every couple of months through different hospital sections, such as you know they'll spend a couple of months in emergency rooms, they'll do a couple of months in internal medicine, obstetrics, paediatrics, surgery, etc. And so through these rotations, not only are they meant to sort of get a sense of like actually learning the practices of each of these, but also you know to, to it's a year of discernment, right, for them to determine what kind of medicine they want. To practice um, after medical school. Um, in terms of uh, their, their duties, um, you know, one could probably classify uh, interns as sort of trainee or lackeys or, or junior medic, right? So their duties can range significantly and can include anything from patient intake and examination. They might be asked to run samples to the laboratory. They might do rounds with doctors, like going into patient's room and asking questions and learning what it's like to interact with with patients. Um, They often will do presentation of clinical cases in front of an audience where they have to get to know a particular case and then be an expert on it and elicit um, answers from their audience. Um, And they might also do small procedures like you know removing sutures or, or or drawing blood or inserting a catheter um, but what really was striking in 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 all my my research with these interns was that paperwork was a huge part of their duties so they were in charge of writing the pre, the patient progress notes. They had to check that the patient uh, clinical histories were up to date. They had to ensure that all notes and forms um, were in the patient's chart and uh, the doctors had signed the forms, right? So, um, you know, we sort of, uh, as, I, as I note in the book, um, though the, the interns didn't really articulate this overtly, um, when they would talk about what they did during their internship year, and as I witnessed what they were doing, uh, they tended to describe a progression from sort of mundane or basic care to you know, more complex and more interesting forms of care. And as they got closer to the end of their internship, you could tell that they just had a a greater sense of responsibility for, for their, for their patients, as opposed to their, you know, the attending doctors as patients. So they were sort of shifting their whole sense of, of self.
2: Mm -hmm. And so as, and I guess to pick up where you just left off the, the students, um, they seem to be becoming like transformed into doctors. Um, And so that's that you're you know that you're looking at um, and describing in the book and um, and this there that involves like a shifting of self which I'll um, get I'll ask in in a little bit but also you talk about how gender plays a really integral role in the education process um, in in how they're being socialized as doctors and how they're being addressed according to their gender identity so I wondered um, how is the process of learning medicine gendered and how do the students navigate
1: this Yeah. Thank you. This is a great question. Um, So I, I found that notions of gender were threaded through so many of the interactions. So the more time I spent in the hospital shadowing the trainees, the more I would hear them say that women can't be trauma doctors. In fact, that's the title of, of one of the chapters. And, you know, it was a refrain that that I constantly heard. And at first I was quite stunned, right? Because most of the female interns I interacted with were, were you know, strong feminist women who I did not think would somehow buy into, into any hegemonic ideas about their abilities. So I I started to ask the participants about gender in these spaces, and what I discovered was a significant gendered way of being a medical trainee and, and a doctor. So first of all, it was the idea that though female doctors were seen to be as technically and intellectually competent as men, they were also seen to be more likely to be emotional or sensitive or physically weak, and so this this belief was was there, despite the equally prevailing stories of male surgeons who would you know have meltdowns in their surgeries. But somehow it was the female doctors who were constantly being categorized as, as weak or, or hysterical. Um, the, the second thing is that the, the the interns spoke a lot about the, the gendered nature of different uh, specialties. So some specialties were considered to be male. Um, like surgery or orthopedics, um, because men were seen to be physically stronger. So this goes back to that original quote of like, women can't be trauma doctors. While other uh, specialties were, were female, uh, like dermatology. And this is a quote from from one of my participants that I include in the book. And it was because they, they said that because women liked, like creams and stuff, right? There's something about the cosmetics that women like. And so that's why they want to go into dermatology. So it was just really fascinating to hear these, these very gendered perspectives from people who were all equally capable, um, regardless of the gender of like doing the the labor of of an intern. Um, But as I I, really sort of dug into this more, I realized that these stereotypes hit a much deeper gendered issue of of abuse. So the abuse towards women took the form of sexual harassment and what I term in the book, uh, dirty trade, where women had to try to balance being trained With rejecting constant invitations uh, for coffee or dates from. From male doctors. So for instance, if they asked a male physician for advice on a procedure or a technique, they sometimes ran the risk of, of being asked for a date in exchange for the knowledge. So that was the experience of, of the female interns. But then the men, on the other hand, tended to be trained with a much harsher, harder hand, and so were more likely to be targets of bullying or just harsher training in general, more humiliation, that sort of stuff. Um, of course, the stories I share in the book are not all negative. Um, in fact, uh, one of my favorite uh, vignettes of the book is about uh, an intern I call Samantha, who was constantly being harassed by, by a surgeon, and she deftly uh, shut him up by turning the tables on him and calling out his BS, literally, in front of his uh uh, peers, which earned her the name of La Respetada, which, you know, basically, you know, translates as the one who owned the situation. And so I have lots of stories of of these sort of gendered interactions. Um, but, you know, some of them are, are more uh, negative in the sense of, like, they're really showing some of the difficulties. But others, like Samantha's, show that, you know, despite these sort of gendered Ways of interaction, interaction that many of them could overcome them, move through them, manage the situation, etc.
2: Mm-hmm. So as you um, chronicle uh, these these doctors and their and their training over this year as an intern, they're developing um, what you call a medical self and. In Chapter 3, you, which you call the soul of the hospital, you discuss how students form these medical selves in becoming skilled doctors. And I'm going to quote you from page 95, where you write, um, a medical self incorporates bodily, sensorial, and self-making processes, such as how to navigate a medical space, how to exemplify expertise how to embody medical institutions, unwritten and written guidelines for being a doctor, or how to act in a doctorly manner. And so I wondered, how did you see students developing these medical selves during your research?
1: Yeah, so I I saw them developing their medical selves in all sorts of ways. So they did this through learning how to use uh, technology like needles or scalpels. Uh, They did this through learning how to talk about patients and cases. Uh, They also did this by, by shifting from the periphery of the action as observers in procedures to being more central to the action as surgeon's assistants, for instance. So I'll share a couple of examples that I think might best illustrate this concept of the medical self. Which, as I point out in the book, is constantly being created through interactions with patients and colleagues. Right? It isn't just a one-time thing that develops um, over the internship. In fact, as I argue in in the book, it, it's something that you know they they keep on forming um, over the the course of their medical career. But uh, so uh, one of the one of the examples I want to. Uh, talk about is is uh, Carlos, um, who was assigned one day to cast uh, to ca- cut off. Um, it was a full body cast of this four year old toddler who had been born with uh, congenital uh, deformities, and uh, you know she was really wiggly, really scared. She screamed the whole time. Any any time anyone in the white coat would walk into the cubicle where she was with her with her parents. And so carlos uh had had, had, had so that the, the the saw had to the, the cast had to be sawn off right so they had to use a specialized saw for this and uh, Carlos had never used a saw before a cast saw before, and he you know in consequence he used it quite poorly. So at first the doctor who was in charge you know showed Carlos really quickly how to use it he cut one of the sides of the of the cast along the little patient's leg <clears throat> and then uh, with almost no supervision Carlos was then told to continue doing this even though his patient was literally like screaming hysterically and then the saw itself kept on overheating so much that Carlos had to periodically stop it and let it rest and so he's doing this with only a nurse occasionally sort of telling him, "Well, you might find it easier to cut here. Or why don't you try this other thing?" But for the most part, it was just gadlos like leaning over the patient who was screaming, um, and he's like trying to get this this saw to work, but it kept on overheating. And so every time he stopped to let the saw rest, he was assigned to a new patient in the emergency room. So by the time he he finished sewing off the cast, at least an hour had passed, right? And he'd attended to maybe like five or six other patients in the emergency room. Um, and so, you know, so that was one example of, you know, the ways that this medical self is sort of being developed through, through how they, they have to, they're sometimes just thrown into the deep end. They don't really know what, what did, they, what they're doing, but they just have to, kind of figure it out, even in really complex and heartbreaking situations like this one. Um, so the the second example I wanted to talk about is something that the, the, the interns had to do Uh, almost monthly, Um, and it was the presentation of medical cases. And so this was a way for them to perform their identity uh, verbally as doctors by using all the technical terms. Um, They also, you know, would work alongside an expert doctor, and also it was a way for them to learn how to boil down patient subjectivity into useful, objective, uh, seemingly objective nuggets uh, for others. So this example that I'm going to share is uh, by Cesar, um, who presented the case of a woman who had arrived... Uh, at, uh, almost at midnight on December 31st. Um, and so he described just the, the real basics of her biography. Like when he starts his presentation, he's like talking about her age, her gender, her marital status, etc., And then he proceeded to explain what he called the patient's p- pathological uh, background. So he quickly shifts from the patient's subjectivity to, you know, just focusing on the pathology, uh, which included her symptoms of breathlessness, um, how they got worse over over her time in the emergency room, uh, the types of tests and conclusions that the doctors were, were running and, and uh, coming to based on the tests. But what what was key, uh, not only, I mean, I'm using one example of a, of a case presentation, but this is what was pretty typical for all of them, is that when they presented these clinical cases, they were considered the expert on the topic, and so they were expected to present Some of the details to the interns in the audience, and then use the Socratic method to try to get all of these interns to work through the differential diagnosis themselves, such as what labs they would request and why, and what conclusions they would come to because of that. And then, you know, these were usually like a 45 minute to to an hour long presentation. And at the very end, there would be like the big reveal, like, Okay, so this is actually what the patient had, um, and but in the in the process, you know, that these interns would sort of elicit um, the the responses, the ideas from from their peers. So what what became obvious while observing the interns was that much of the knowledge and practice of the internship was about figuring out just how to do things and then repeating them often until they became familiar. So they moved from sort of fragments of knowledge, um, fragments of information, actually, to to conscious knowledge. And uh, their medical self wasn't just learning how to wield an unfamiliar instrument. It also consisted of learning how to enter a patient's room with authority. Being able to present a case with confidence and it was the ability to engage bodily with patients, learning how to cut, how to sew, how to do all of these things, you know, traversing these boundaries of, of the body and also to project a confident air to everyone around them.
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: Yeah, those are really great um, and very descriptive glimpses into your into your fieldwork and into your research, and also into the different stories that you share in the book that were really just so illuminating and really great for the reader to help to understand you know what's going on in these spaces. Um, yeah, and they're very demonstrative of your of your concepts, um, which I know other people would really. Um, you know, find find rich and engaging as they read the book. Um, and I wanted to ask you then, I guess, about your research process as well, um, out of which, you know, these, these scenarios came out of, um, because you, the book is very ethnographic, and you seem to spend, you know, quite a bit of time in the hospital with the interns. Um, and, you know, this is a really... You know, close ethnography of their learning processes. Um, So I wanted to ask just how did you gain access to the students? Um, How did you decide who to follow? Um, And and really just any other anything you would want to share about the research, the ethnographic research process that you undertook?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I first want to say that I just love hospital ethnography. I never thought I would. Um, you know, I, I think most of us, you know, we've all been patients at some point, and many of us sort of dread hospitals at, at, for different things, different reasons. But just being on that side of the of the experience really sort of transformed my ideas about the hospitals themselves. And just I love being in these spaces. And I find it such a rare opportunity to get behind the scenes in places that are both incredibly familiar to us as patients, and also really unfamiliar, as like the lives of doctors. We don't really know that much about their lives um, outside of our interactions with them. So I I have found over over my my. My experience is that access to hospitals is a slow process of interacting with the gatekeepers, um, working through the requirements of their ethics boards, which vary enormously in, in different types of hospitals, and then also establishing rapport with the directors of, of research. And these directors of research are are the ones who are in charge of of medical training at any any given hospital. So after I went through that process, which took close to a year prior to my starting this project, I met with the interns as a group and I explained my research. And most of them agreed to participate in a first interview. And there I I started to establish rapport with them. So as any ethnographer knows, uh, part of the way of, of, of gaining access is just to be there and, you know, to, to be seen. So I, 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 I was ha- hanging out as visibly as I could. I would hang out in the passages and in the classrooms where they would do their work. And, you know, I, I would try not to interrupt their work. I, I really grew to value just how little time they had for, for, for most things, never mind, you know, an inquisitive ethnographer asking you know for them pretty dumb questions about like well why did you decide to do this and you know what what are the steps to go from a to z in this particular procedure right so i tried not to be a nuisance but at the same time i knew that my questions were were pretty basic um but they they just really were were so lovely and uh you know as we chatted and i we got to know each other i would ask them you know could i go to could i accompany them into the some of these places um these spaces that they were going into and try to you know witness the procedures that they were that they were doing so in a way that the two places i did the most work um were the emergency room and then the obstetrics wards so my, my interest, as I mentioned at the very beginning of, of today's uh, conversation, you know, really sort of has gravitated around reproduction and motherhood. And so that's why I tended to find my, my interest more towards, you know, the the obstetrics wards themselves. But then there was something also about the emergency room that, that attracted me um, because it just sort of put so much of, of you know, their, their duties, their responsibilities under a really bright light of the emergency, right? They couldn't sort of take slow decisions. They had to take pretty quick decisions um, about, about procedures. Um, and so I, 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 I tried as much as possible to follow all the interns so I could get a general picture of, of their practice. Um, but some of them, as is the, the case in any ethnographic research, you know, some of them did become closer interlocutors who seemed to care about my research question just a little bit more or really asked sort of more questions about what I was doing there and why. Um, and so they would you know, reach out to me and let me know that there were procedures I should check out or they would text me and say, hey, we have a, a birth coming in. There's going to be a cesarean in a while. Right. So they would sort of alert me to to things that I might um, uh, that I probably shouldn't miss. Um so with your with your question when you say you know is there anything else i want to share about about my research um i do want to um add something that i mentioned only briefly in my book but it actually was a was a larger part of being an ethnographer for this project and that was doing that was uh, actually you know being able to do ethnography in the field while also having my five year old daughter with me. So she's 11 now. So at that point, she was five. Um, So balancing research and motherhood was a really interesting challenge. Um, So I had a research assistant. Her name is Megan Marshala. She was a former student of mine. And uh, she's now uh, doing a residency for obstetrics. And uh, I met her when she was an undergraduate. And she had experience in Puebla. She was really interested in the topic. And she was trying to do a gap year between undergrad and and, uh, med school. So I said, hey, why don't you come along? She and my daughter already got along. So I said, well, you know, let's combine it all. Um, And uh, so she came to the field. Uh, with me, uh, both as a research assistant and as a babysitter. Um, And because of her, I was able to extend some of my hours in the hospital that I would not have been able to do otherwise. So, you know, in the morning, we would drop off my my daughter at a little preschool and then head to the hospital for several hours. Megan was an amazing researcher. And, uh, you know, we would sort of go into procedures together. Um, She would interview some of the people. I would interview others. But at other times we would be, you know, collaborating in the in the same um, the same space, and then she would leave at around you know midday sometime to to fetch my daughter from school, and then I would be able to spend spend a couple of hours extra at the the hospital, you know, being able to enter into procedures or actually you know staying the full length of a birth, um, or you know carry out additional interviews that I wouldn't have been able to had I you know had had to. Um, you know, go and and fetch my daughter. So the reason I mentioned this is that many times people think of ethnography as a full-time thing, right? You go to the field, you stay there, it's incredibly immersive, which it still was. Um, But yet many of us have to balance other identities while in the field, and we have to rely on the support of others to get the work done. So, you know, I just thought that that was important to be able to really sort of illustrate that, you know, when we combine ethnography with additional identities, in this case, it was motherhood, you know, it's not easy to, to do it alone. Yeah. Thank you for
2: that reflection and for sharing that, because it also disrupts our idea of the lone ethnographer by themselves with their little notebook and pen. Um, emphasize the collective. Um, it's not, you know, it's not just us and, we need other people to you know go about what we do um, exactly thank you um, and so your book it made me reflect on my own education and this process of becoming or the process of being a PhD student, becoming someone with a PhD, and then a professor. And it made me think about how I learned and and what I learned to get me to this point. And and I was was wondering, it also made me think about like my academic self, I guess, and how Mm -hmm. I it. And so I wondered if your research made you reflect on your own process of education, and if you see any similarities or differences between, um, I guess, your process of education and the interns process of becoming doctors.
1: Yeah, um, so it's interesting that you bring that up. As I did a ton of reflecting about my own training in my PhD, as well as the training that we're currently doing in, in graduate programs in anthropology. Um, so much of a, the the literature I accessed about mentoring and about gender relations were written by anthropologists who were describing training in academia. So when they spoke about gender harassment or abuse or toxic spaces or other significant issues, I could apply these to the data I had collected and the stories I had heard and the things I'd witnessed as well as the things I'd witnessed in academia. So a topic I discuss in chapter two um, is about the issues of external and internal violence uh, to the system. So I draw from um, the work of Mexican sociologist uh, Roberto Castro, um, who stated that doctors are very attuned to what he termed external violence. So these would be like criticisms from outside medicine about their practice, such as lawsuits or accusations of obstetric violence. But they're equally almost blind to the internal violence within the system, such as gender harassment, bullying, etc. So that is, uh, they, they naturalize these practices in medicine as just part of how things are done. And so the hugely long hours, the lack of sleep, like being awake for more than 36 hours straight, the being scolded and put on the spot as a regular practice, part of training or shamed for not knowing something or even punished by working by being told to work extra hours a day in the hospital so all of these you know are, are perceived to be sort of natural parts of medical training and so all of these made me reflect on how we are educating the next generation of anthropology phd's especially how there are certain types of mentors who can be quite hostile or abusive and can create an environment where such a behavior is naturalized um, so, you know, I do think that departments need to be very aware of how different mentors engage with graduate students who, like the interns, are lower on the hierarchy and have much less power. And, you know, how to and, and then I, I think an important question is, you know, how to identify when abuse becomes systemic or naturalized as normal, because I think these same things of like criticism from the outside and then the, the sort of blindness to the violence inside are also prevalent in academia. We might be very attuned to someone saying, well, academia is such and such. If that person is from the outside, we might we might get defensive. Um, and though we're perfectly happy to criticize academia from within. But we might not always be aware of some of these, you know, micro inequities, these um you know, microaggressions or larger forms of aggression and humiliation and shame that, that are taking place within um, mentor, mentee, PhD interactions. So that, that was sort of like what really, I think, helped me to, to reflect about uh, academia.
2: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, and so I, was, I wanted to turn to, um, I guess, your work in the classroom, um, teaching medical anthropology, Um, because as a graduate student, I was a teaching assistant for medical anthropology classes, and I majored in anthropology as an undergrad, and I also took a lot of classes in medical anthropology. And so I always found medical anthropology really interesting in that it departed from this idea where biomedicine is the only way to understand the body. and, And it also showed us, as you show, that medicine is itself a cultural world. And And so I would imagine that as a medical anthropologist, you teach a lot of pre-med students and other students interested in health fields. And so I wondered um, if you include these insights from the book in your classroom um, and how, how do you do
1: that? yeah it, it's funny you should ask as this is the first semester I'm teaching my work so I, I i agonized uh this whole summer about whether I should assign the book to the students in my class which um, the, the class I'm teaching is called the culture of medicine how doctors think mm-hmm. so it felt slightly self-serving right to, to assign my own book but uh, my colleagues really supported me and so I have assigned it to my to my students so we will be discussing it next week so I actually don't have any clue how they'll be receiving it uh, as as a, as a piece of work um, but you know to, to your to your larger question you know what I have found is that pre-med students really crave these sorts of anthropological perspectives um, for instance in some of my past classes pre-med students had never really thought about biomedicine as a type of culture um, they'd assumed that biomedicine was something you know natural, uh, rather than having developed from a particular cultural or historical or geographic context. So when when I've taught these types of classes, they're often quite taken aback by how cultural biomedicine is, you know sh- and how it's shaped by different factors such as race or class or gender or history and you know other other structures, as well as how it's structured by finances or ideas of what a good what good and bad physicians are. are. Um, so when students really get to think through what biomedicine is, and you give them a chance to sort of, you know, look under the hood, the metaphorical hood, and they see the complexity of human behaviors and histories that have gone into biomedicine, they really come away with a better idea of what it is to do medicine. And I hope in the process, it also makes them into better, better doctors, um, because they really sort of reflect much more on medicine is a just, a. Uh, uh, a set of technical skills. It isn't just knowing, you know, how to put in a suture. It isn't just knowing how to sort of whittle down the whole sort of subjectivity of a patient into these sort of objective, so-called objective um, um, medical histories. Medicine is a social thing. Uh, it's, it's you know we inhabit social bodies, and the, the illness of a person isn't just something that occurs in their body. It is something shaped by much larger things, and so, you know, when when pre med students really realize this, I think it it they find it quite transformative um indeed i mean there's a there's a growing school of thought that is pushing for more medical students to take medical humanities in any shape or form whether that's anthropology or you know classes in the history of medicine or you know even sort of film and the physician right like learning how are physicians represented in the media and what does that tell you? Not only about the media itself and the medium of film, but then what is it that we're picking up from what a doctor is, and how is it then being portrayed, and what is being ignored, what is being highlighted, etc. Um, and so, you know, by, when students take these sort of more holistic um, approaches to um, to then reflect back on their on their biochemistries, on their physics, on their anatomy classes, they just are able to 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 get much better skills at observation, at understanding, or even empathy than they otherwise would have had.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. That's so. That's so important. Um, those are some of the things that I took away from medical anthropology, and. I think it's, I think it's great that, you know, your book and looking at the transformation of medical students into doctors will also help your own students. Then um, it'll be transformative for them as well in their own journey, either towards careers or elsewhere, um, because obviously medical care is such an important part of so many people's lives that, you know, the and your work really just touches on, you know, beyond people who work in health, but just people in general who interact with these systems
1: exactly yeah i mean here i focused on doctors but obviously you know medical care is performed by many people including nurses and orderlies and you know medicine is a much much wider uh, or the idea of health is much much wider than than what i've described here
2: Mm -hmm. thank you and so i wondered um as our as the final question Um, we'd like to turn to this question of now that the book is out, do you have any new projects on the horizon? Or are you working on? um, What what are you working on now? um, That's sort of advancing your your own either research or um, other, you know, teaching agendas?
1: Yeah, I do actually have uh, a new project. Um, So I have a collaborative project with uh, with an anthropologist uh, called Lydia Dixon she's a medical anthropologist at California State University in Channel Islands and uh, so Lydia and I have begun working on on a project uh, funded by the National Science Foundation on cesarean incisions in Mexico so she's worked for many years in Mexico with midwives and she was one of the first people to really identify um, obstetric violence in Mexico. And so together we've been working on this project uh, for for probably a couple of years, um, and we will be the, the aim of this is to investigate whether there's diff, whether different incision types. So, but just to, you know, as a bit of background, the cesarean has two. Gen, two sort of basic incisions. one is a vertical one and one is horizontal. And uh, we're trying to figure out if if each of these incision types maps onto different groups based on factors such as class or race or ethnic origin or skin color. So anecdotal evidence from anthropologists uh, suggests that that whiter or wealthier women receive a more aesthetic horizontal incision, while darker or less wealthy um, women are more likely to receive a vertical one. So ad- additional factors that, you know, um, are important that that will be taking into account include, you know, infection rates for each incision type or, you know, the, the scarring, um, recovery rates, you know, effect on, on, on perceptions of motherhood, um, et cetera, that, you know, might also contribute to different or inequitable health outcomes, and so, I mean, uh, we we just got the grant. So, uh, and of course, COVID has been around almost for you know two years at this point. Um, and so, you know, we we haven't been able to to get to the hospitals yet. We do hope, if uh, fingers crossed, that we will be able to get to, to Mexico next next year and figure out whether these anecdotes do actually pan out to to some sort of you know potential sort of uh, systematic racism or some kind of like uh if there is something about inequities that is being mapped onto whether deliberately or unintentionally onto you know um onto uh, birthing women and you know and if so what, do, what does all of this tell us about the racialized practices of of medicine
2: mm. Well, congratulations on getting that grant, and we'll look out for that work in the future as well. Um, and we wish, wish you the best in trying to navigate the current conditions um, of COVID and every of all the uncertainty. Thank you. Um, but so I have been speaking with Dr. Vanya Smith-Oka, the author of Becoming Gods, Medical Training in Mexican Hospitals, published by Rutgers University Press. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Smith-Oka, for writing this book and for sharing it with us on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. It's been, been a real pleasure to, to speak with you today.